The Clouds of Titan. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The Webb Space Telescope has captured weather on Titan, one of the moons of Saturn. It's an incredible observation made possible by the telescope's massive mirror, its orbit, and the use of near-infrared sensors. And it shouldn't be the only image of clouds on other worlds. We'll talk with one planetary scientist about how this is just the beginning and how JWST will help us peer into the atmospheres of planets outside our solar system. Then, as NASA's Orion spacecraft makes its way home after a trip to the moon, we'll look back at NASA's last moonshot, Apollo, and how it compares to NASA's Artemis program, the agency's new lunar ambition. From Titan to the moon. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. The Webb Space Telescope was launched almost a year ago, and since this summer, it has been beaming back incredible images of our universe. One set of images recently released are from observations of Titan, one of Saturn's moons that shows the surface features and clouds. To talk more about this observation and what it means for the future of astronomical observations of our solar system and beyond, we're joined by Paul Byrne, an associate professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Paul, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brennan. Lovely to be back. So uh, a team of scientists has um, captured some interesting photos of Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Before we get into their findings, let's talk about why Titan is so interesting. Why study this, this moon in the first place? Okay, so first off, the only reason we call Titan a moon is because it orbits a much larger body. It orbits Saturn, the second largest planet in the solar system. But by any other metric, Titan is a planet. Uh, it's bigger than Mercury, which is the smallest of the standard now eight classical planets. Um, it's not as dense as Mercury, and that's because uh, it's got an icy shell. So the ground on Titan is, is ice. Titan is about 10 times farther from the sun than we are, and so the surface temperature is much, much, much lower. Uh, Titan also has a very thick atmosphere of smoggy hydrocarbons and methane and ethane and all kinds of stuff. But what makes Titan an incredible world is that it uh, has active surface processes. Um, in fact, it's the only other place in the solar system where it rains. Um, we see rivers, we see deltas, lakes, except that the fluid isn't liquid water as it is on earth it is in fact uh liquid methane and ethane because of how unbelievably cold it is um, but we see very similar landscapes and morphologies no vegetation but in terms of just the raw landscape much of titan is not all that dissimilar to earth it's kind of creepy and what's what makes titan even more interesting i mean there's a whole pile of things that are interesting for titan it's got organic chemistry um, there's an amount of it there that we really don't see anywhere else in the solar system. A lot of scientists think that Titan could hold important keys for us to understand what we call prebiotic chemistry, the chemistry that was present before life emerged. Um, the temperature in Titan is a lot different to what early Earth would have been like, but perhaps some of the chemistry was similar. Um, the atmosphere of Titan is considerably thicker than the atmosphere of Earth, yet the gravity is lower, and so it is theoretically possible no one obviously has done this yet that a human could strap wings to their arms and with the muscle power they have themselves potentially fly themselves around venus which would be cool 
Um, I think it'd be good to see that. And then under, or not Venus, rather Titan. And then under, what's really interesting on Titan is that, so you've got this outer shell where you have these surface features. That outer icy shell essentially floats or sits on top of, we think, a subsurface liquid water ocean. And underneath that ocean is a rocky body. And so there are almost two surfaces on Titan. There's the icy stuff on the top, and then underneath that in the dark, there's this ocean floor. Uh, about which we have very little information. So it's just a really, really interesting world and a really interesting example of of the variations on the theme we see throughout the solar system. Mm-hmm. I can't get out of my head the thought of you flapping your wings on on Titan. Uh, so. Oh, it's like, it's the last week of semester, so it would be, be pathetic. Uh, you know, try me after the break, where maybe I'd actually ability to get off the ground. But but it kind of it, in fact, it's the ability of 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 generating lift without needing as much energy that underpins one of NASA most exciting upcoming missions, a mission called Dragonfly. Dragonfly was selected in the summer of 2019 as part of NASA's New Frontiers mission competition. Uh, these are missions that are they're, they're expensive. They're led by one principal investigator, and then that person will have a team, to be Tuttle at, at uh, Turtle at uh, the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab as the PI of, of Dragonfly. And, uh, and with her team, she's leading this concept to fly a nuclear-powered octocopter drone at Titan. And if you've ever flown a drone on Earth, you know it's not that easy. And now NASA is working to prepare something the size of a large um, freezer. It's 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 not huge, but it's not small. Um, basically, to deploy this thing, it's going to launch, I think, in the next couple of years, 2026, maybe. It'll get there to Titan in the early 2030s. Uh, it will come in from very high velocity all the way into the atmosphere. But instead of directly landing... The goal will be that its rotors will come will, will kick in as it's moving falling through the atmosphere. It comes in under a parachute, and it will be able to fly to multiple locations across the surface of Titan over the course of one or two Earth years. The fact that the gravity is lower and the atmosphere is thicker makes it a perfect place to go and develop that kind of essentially aeronautical technology to fly a spacecraft through the atmosphere of Titan. Absolutely bonkers, and I I can't wait for those images. Like Dragonfly is such a such a neat mission, but we've got some really great images of Titan now, thanks to right. a team working um, with the Webb Space Telescope. Tell me a bit about what they were able to observe using JWST. So one of the powerful features of JWST is that it has an array of cameras that can see in different wavelengths, including in near-infrared. And it turns out the near-infrared is a really powerful way. So near-infrared is, you know, it's it's not all that far off the, the wavelength that, say, your television remote works, right? We, we don't see. It's beyond the visible spectrum. And um, we emit light in the near-infrared, but it's a powerful way of peering into the deep universe. Uh, near-infrared wavelengths can penetrate a lot of the dust that's in space. And so Webb, for example, has been showing us uh, vistas that we, we couldn't ever possibly see, for example, with Hubble or other telescopes we would have. And so the ability of Webb to look at Titan, it's not a, only able to see it in infrared, it has multiple what we call channels where it can see in different parts of the infrared spectrum. And by comparing these images and building them up, scientists can actually see different facets, different parts of the Titan uh, system 
uh, from Earth, which is which is well not from Earth, but from the Webb Telescope, which is remarkable. So, for example, we had two images in different parts of the infrared spectrum, where in one we could see really interesting structure in the in the clouds and in the temperature of the atmosphere, and in another we could start to actually resolve features in the surface itself. Now, what this makes this is really interesting because Titan I mentioned has a very thick atmosphere. That atmosphere is completely opaque in visible wavelengths in the wavelengths that we see with our eyes, which means that if we want to see surface features, it's the same as Venus. We have to use radar to penetrate through that thick cloud layer and see features on the surface, except that there are some wavelengths we can see through the clouds within the infrared, much like for Venus. And so that's what Webb is able to do. It's able to go and look at Titan and show us features on the surface of Titan and features in the atmosphere like clouds in a way that no other telescope we currently have available to us can do. And that's one of the most exciting things. Another thing that's really worth pointing out for, for Webb is that that telescope's primary mirror is so big and its sensors so powerful that it doesn't take all that long to take these images. Uh, it took uh, Hubble, for example, longer to take to say stare at one particular part of the sky because Hubble is an orbit of Earth, which means it takes about 90 minutes to circle Earth, which means that if it's looking at a piece of the sky for about every 45 minutes, it can't see that part of the sky because it's near the side of Earth. The way that NASA engineers have put Webb, it's at one of these places we call a Lagrange point, and it's about a million and a half kilometers, about a million miles from Earth, where it doesn't have that same uh, occluding issue with Earth. It is technically sort of in orbit of Earth, but it has an almost uh, unobstructed view of the cosmos. And that means that it takes Webb much less time to acquire its measurements, in this case of Titan, which means that we can have more scientists using it per unit time and actually get more science out of it faster. That's is, so exciting. And I'm, I'm sure to be able to see these surface features is, has got to help planetary scientists understand Titan a little bit more. But I mean, as as a layperson looking at these images, I mean, you, we're seeing clouds in the atmosphere of Titan. That's like mind boggling yep. to me, right? I mean, that's incredible, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, we, we're, we're seeing weather, right? We're basically seeing what's happening in the, in the atmosphere of, of an object bigger than Mercury that's 10 times farther from the sun than we are. And what's really powerful about this, it, it, so when these images came out in the last week, you know, people on Twitter were making the comment, well, you know, we can also, we have telescopes on Earth that can observe Titan as well. And that's true. But as anyone who's ever tried to use a telescope for doing planetary astronomy knows, time on telescopes is precious. So the more data we have, the better. But the other really exciting thing about this is we can now look at Titan every so often with Webb and with other telescopes on Earth. And that means we can do what we call these longitudinal studies. We can do these things where we're checking in on this body every couple of years, every couple of months, even depending on, on when folks get funded. And so what that means is that it's not just a one-off snapshot we have. We can see what the weather's doing. Now, we're not going to be able to look at it daily, although we actually have near daily weather data from Mars, which is pretty cool. And of course, we have a fleet of meteorological tel uh, satellites, telescopes orbiting Earth. But what's really cool is that Saturn has seasons. So the Saturn system has an, an, an axial tilt, much like Earth does. And so there's a time in its orbit around the sun when the northern hemisphere will have summer, and there'll be a time when the northern hemisphere, for example, will be in winter, just like Earth. Everything in the Saturn system, including its rings and its moons, goes through the same kind of seasonal change. And what that means is that there are different times of the Saturn year where Titan will be getting different amounts of sunlight. And that means that's going to have effects on its chemistry, on its temperature, on the structure of its atmosphere. And now with Webb, 
we can relatively quickly and relatively straightforwardly acquire data every so often as Saturn makes its way around the sun and basically track what's happening to Titan. We could it's never be thinking, you know, you said that, you know, there's more time on telescope. It's it's in this Lagrange point that gives it more time to stare at a particular piece of the sky. It's got this massive mirror to collect all of this light. Could these observations be made on things like exoplanets? Will we be able to look at the atmosphere of planets that exist outside of our solar system, much like we're looking at Titan? Not only could we, that was one of the basic key things that Webb was designed to do. And this is, this is personally one of the things I think is coolest about this mission. Basically, Webb has the ability to go and take these measurements for the atmospheres of these extrasolar planets or exoplanets. And not only have they done that, in the last few weeks, those first set of results are beginning to come out now. And Webb was able to resolve a process that we call photochemistry happening in the atmosphere of an exoplanet for the first time ever. Photochemistry is this basic idea that if you have stuff in the atmosphere, it reacts with sunlight and then you undergo chemical reactions and you get new chemicals that you wouldn't have otherwise. This is a very well understood process and phenomenon in the atmosphere of Earth. And we see this process happening. For example, in, in Titan, a lot of the really long, weird organic molecules that Titan has are formed through this process of photochemistry. We know that photochemistry also takes place in the, in the atmosphere of Venus. So it's not so much that we didn't expect to find it, but it's one thing to expect something, and quite another to actually see it for the first time. And Webb, thanks to its huge mirror, its ability to stare with great precision at a very, very small target, relatively speaking, that's very, very far away, Webb is able to actually identify chemistry that can only be formed thanks to this process we call photochemistry. This is just the, and the thing only came on stream this summer. So we're only really still beginning to get the early results from this. One of the biggest uh, focuses of Webb, it has like five core science things that it does. And one of them is to look at the atmospheres of exoplanets. It might not be with this telescope that we would find, say, a chemical signature that could be consistent with a planet being inhabited. But it absolutely is this telescope that's going to help us determine where are there habitable conditions in the universe. And that's one of the most exciting things I think you could do. Literally, my hair is standing up on my arms thinking about that. <laughs> this is incredible. We've been speaking with Paul Byrne, Associate Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences. Thanks for giving me chills this afternoon, Paul. Always a pleasure, Brandon. Always a pleasure. Still to come, as NASA's first Artemis mission heads home from the moon, we'll look back at the historic differences between this moonshot and the Apollo program. Are We There Yet is back in a minute here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Artemis 1 mission, which launched an uncrewed space capsule to the moon, is wrapping up as the Orion spacecraft makes its way back to Earth, with a splashdown scheduled later this week. This next chapter in moon history, called Artemis, is aptly named. In Greek mythology, Artemis was the goddess of the moon and twin sister of Apollo. But these two programs are very different. To hear more about the historical context of NASA's moon missions and what sets them apart, we're going to revisit a conversation with Amy Foster, a professor of history at the University of Central Florida, focusing on U.S. space history. So, Professor, in, in mythology, Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. In reality, 
these are very different programs. Um, what jumps out at you as some of the biggest differences between the Apollo of the 1960s and 1970s and the Artemis of today? Well, I think the biggest difference is the Apollo program was very much about the race with the Soviets. You know, this was um, an element of the Cold War. Uh, President Kennedy made the decision to go to the moon, not because he thought we had a greater purpose in space, but he needed a political win. Um, the Bay of Pigs fiasco had just happened and and Kennedy was was looking for anything that could kind of reinvigorate his position and the American people. And we had we had been behind in the space race against the Soviets pretty much since the, the beginning. They had put up the first satellite in space. They put the first man in space. They put the first man in orbit. Then they're going to put the first woman in orbit, first space station in orbit. You know, so it it was it was already looking um, pretty frustrating, I think, for the American people. And that's really what what Kennedy um, took advantage of uh, with the space program is 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 in sitting down with the NASA administrator, James Webb. Webb said, I think we can beat the Soviets to the moon. And so that's really what Apollo was about from from a, an outward standing perspective. Now, NASA understood we're going to the moon. We have to make it purposeful beyond just the political because NASA was founded as a scientific organization. Um, that's how President Eisenhower created it. And so, you know, we aren't we weren't just going to send people to the moon and say, hey, plant a flag and come on home. You know, it was about collecting lunar samples for study um, as much as anything. But I think for for the astronauts and for NASA, they understood that part um, and they they emphasized that. So so making, you know, lunar sample collection and observation and, you know, planting geological survey equipment uh, was a big part of what NASA was doing on the moon. Um, but, you know, the outward side was very political. Artemis really is about the science. We aren't in the midst of a space race um, as much as the Chinese would like us to engage in one. Um, we aren't. Um, this, this, the whole mission is designed to return us to the moon, gather more scientific data, uh, samples, but also to learn how to live in space in a way that, you know, what we've been doing on the International Space Station in low Earth orbit can't do. The idea for the, the next step is to go to Mars. And so being able to, to colonize uh, in space is, you know, a big part of what Artemis is going to be about. It's not just going to the moon and collecting samples anymore. It is about learning to live there. Um, and that's just the whole, the whole tenor of the mission is it's really kind of flip-flop from what we see in the 1960s. You know, science yeah. was secondary with Apollo and it is primary with Artemis. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that because of the geopolitical background during the Apollo program, you know, Kennedy needed a win and and this was his win. Um, who stands to win with with Artemis? I mean, this is a program that has transcended presidential administrations. There really is no one person we can say made this happen. So is there even a political winner with Artemis or, or does somebody else win? You know, NASA certainly isn't 
pushing a political agenda in this one. Um, and it's, I think one of the things that, that we, we can look back at Apollo is that it was, it was a global event, no matter what, uh, you know, it was something that people around the world watched. They watched Neil Armstrong's first steps on the moon. Uh, and it was in that sense, it, it very, it was very much, um, an achievement for humankind. And so I think, you know, because there is no political attachment to Artemis, what we learn on the moon with this go around is something that definitely is going to have global ramifications. One, one of the things that, that NASA has always been very open about is their program. You know, what are we doing? How can what we learn help mankind, humankind as a, as a whole? And so I think what the, the lessons that we learned from Artemis are going to be something that, that definitely transcends just the United States and is going to have, you know, Im- impacts around the world. And I think one of the things that, that, you know, NASA has always done is every time they're developing something and learning something new, you know, that's scientific knowledge that, that they publish that they release. And then even some of the technologies that they develop are things that trickle down into, you know, everyday life. And one of the things that, you know, we don't think about is, is medical equipment. You know, a lot of the sensors that were used to track the, the physiological changes that astronauts were experiencing during launch and landing, all of those biosensors that we think about now that, you know, they put on you when you go into the emergency room or when you have surgery or an EKG. Those are all trickle down technologies from those biosensors developed by NASA during the Mercury program. What we learned from Artemis, we're honestly not even going to know really how much we benefit from the knowledge that we're going to gain from Artemis because it's it's NASA simply going to put it out there and the, the world is going to be able to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Amy Foster, an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida. Um, Amy, the, the Artemis missions aim to land the first woman and first person of color on the moon. Your research looks at and, and you've written extensively about NASA's efforts to integrate women into the astronaut corps. I'm wondering what do you think some of the first women to join NASA's astronauts might think of of this goal and this moment that we're entering in now, I I think they're going to be excited by it. You know, I think when we when we look at the first six women who entered the astronaut corps in 1978, uh, they understood their role as as trailblazers um, and breaking down barriers, and and even amongst themselves, they they understood that they were setting precedents as well. When, when Sally Ride was assigned to her first flight to be the first American woman in space, she went to the other five women and said, you know, these are kind of the, the things that I plan to do on this mission. This is the checklist that I'm planning to use when I, you know, use the remote manipular, manipulator arm. Do these make sense to you? Because she understood that everything she did was going to be judged. Um, and she wanted to make sure that what she did was something that the, the other six women were okay with because she understood that that was going to matter long term. I think for them, they understand the role of those firsts. Um, but I also know they don't see this as tokenism. You know, when we look at, at the astronaut corps now, 
there are plenty of women in it. In fact, the last three classes that have been selected, it's almost 50%. The, the class three classes ago was exactly 50%. And now it's, it's been almost parity. We, you know, with the second to last class, it was uh, 11 people selected were selected. Five of them were women. This last class, 10 people were selected, four were women. And that's as much a reflection of, of how much, uh, access has changed for women into getting graduate degrees in the sciences and jobs in the sciences and engineering and, and medicine, um, as well as women getting access to advanced pilot training in the military. You know, so what we see in, in terms of the astronaut corps is something that is much more heterogeneous, much more diverse, both in terms of, of, of sex, but also color. And, and so putting, you know, a woman on the moon and the first person of the color on the moon, it is, it, it's not, it's not political and it's not tokenism. It is simply a reflection of what the astronaut corps now is. Um, but I, I know that those, those first women saw themselves as important, you know, we call them kind of, um, entering wedges into a field to kind of opening that door just a little bit to create opportunity. And so I, I hope they see this as, um, you know, part of their legacy, but I, I think they're going to be as excited and proud and I don't know, perhaps even a little bit jealous that, that somebody else gets to land on the moon. And, and finally, Amy, the Apollo 11 landings is, as you alluded to earlier in our conversation, I mean, it captivated a nation in the late 1960s, but you know, after those first landings, public interest and eventually funding for Apollo fell off. Um, do you think Artemis might face the same fate? I think there's, there's always the possibility that NASA's budget will get cut. But I think the, the big difference that we see between Apollo and, you know, how NASA has um, been able to develop Artemis is during the Apollo program, because it had such political emphasis the portion of the federal budget that NASA got in the 1960s was considerably more than what they get now. So I think the, the, the proportion of the federal budget that NASA got when it got its most percentage, um, it got six and a half percent of the federal budget in 1966, and then it started to drop off. Um, and so by the time we landed on the moon, it, it dropped down pretty precipitously down to about one half of 1% of the federal budget NASA's budget is still about one half of 1% of the federal budget. So, you know, it's, it's gone up a little bit here and there, you know, it's, it's flirted with 1% of the federal budget, but it's, it's been pretty stable for pretty close to 50 years. Um, so while there's always talk about cutting NASA's budget, there's not much left to cut. And so while there, I'm sure there will continue to be uh, noise about, this is so much money that we spend when there are bigger problems here, you know, on the ground. And that's always going to be the case. Um, I, I don't see NASA's funding being on the chopping block in quite the same way it was after the Apollo 11 landing. Just, like I say, there's just not that much left to cut. So we've been speaking with Amy Foster. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida. Her research focuses on U.S. space history, and she's the author of the book Integrating Women into the Astronaut Corps, Politics and Logistics at NASA, 1972 to 2004. Amy, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Brian. 
That was Amy Foster, a professor of history at the University of Central Florida, who focuses on U.S. space history. That conversation first aired August 23rd. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org slash space. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira. Editorial guidance this week from Nicole Darden-Creston. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.